Okay, we are going to read from the book of Jude tonight. Uh, it says Judah on your screen because that probably was his actual name and it has been changed throughout history to differentiate it from Judas and from Judah of the Old Testament, but probably this guy's name was Judah. So in this translation, it says Judah, slave of Jesus the Messiah, brother of James, to those who are called the people whom God loves and whom Jesus the Messiah keeps safe. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, I was doing my best to write to you about the rescue in which we share, but I found it necessary to write to you, and this is where we're gonna key in tonight, to urge you to struggle hard for the faith which was once and for all given to God's people. We are starting tonight with this sermon, a series that will run through the rest of the fall and probably into the first part of 2019 on what we believe. And when I say what we believe, I know that that's a bold statement to say that we could preach a series that would uh, somehow encompass things that all of us believe. What we mean by that is we want to spend some time focusing on the heart of the, what, what Jude writes about here, the heart of the faith which was once and for all given to God's people. What is that? What do we believe? What, what makes up that faith which was handed down once and for all for God's people? There are a lot of ways that we acquire beliefs, a lot, of, a, a lot of different experiences in our lives that cause us to believe certain things. Sometimes you're just taught to believe something. Sometimes something that you go through or you see causes you to believe something. I've shared about my personal experience with Fish Camp 25 years ago here, once upon a time. I know it was a while ago because I remember there were Fish Camp college students in the room, and it's been a while since we had Fish Camp people in the room, so I'm not too worried about offending anybody tonight. But for me, uh, this is how Fish Camp went. Uh, I got on a bus with a bunch of people, which is strike one for me. Uh, and my, my social anxiety issues, the windows were down, there was no air conditioning, and then it gets better. We're encouraged to yell moo out the window at cows anytime we see cows to try to get the cows to moo back at you as though you could tell driving on a bus that a cow mooed back at you. <clears throat> and then uh, we got to the camp, and one of my first memories of being at fish camp was there was a kid in my dorm who absolutely refused to leave the dorm for anything but meals. He, his parents had made him come to fish, fish camp, and, but he was doing it under protest. And so he came out to eat, but, but for no other reason. At the beginning of the week, uh, of the weekend, I thought, what a weirdo. By the end of the weekend, I thought, this guy's a hero. <laughs> um, <laughs> He got it before uh, it was too late. Um, so if you haven't been to fish camp, there's lots of sloppy camp games. Um, there's lots of learning of yells, uh, which are great. I have no problem with the yells, uh, but they happen even at meals and weird places like that. It basically was church camp for the Aggie spirit. If you've ever been to church camp, it's that for the Aggie spirit. Tell me some, some, a lot of you have been to fish camp. What are some things you learned to believe at fish camp? There's a lot. That silence is a lie. <laughs> what are some things you were taught to believe at fish camp? 
Aggie Code of Honor, there's one, which is, should be true. What else? The general superiority of Aggies. The general inferiority of T-SIPs. What else? Okay. Um, there were many skits which I blocked out. That may have been one of them. Lots of things I was taught to believe at fish camp, uh, some of which I believe and some of which I don't believe. Um, the, the superiority, inferiority is kind of the central theme of the beliefs, um, but I was taught to believe all kinds of things about what you're supposed to do when the lights go out at yell practice, about what you're supposed to do at yell practice, about what you're supposed to do before yell practice to get ready for yell practice. Lots of things that you were convinced to believe. For me, my, my uh, experience at fish camp like I said, felt like church camp, and it culminated just like church camp does in, in a final evening, which can't be described as anything else but a worship service for the Aggie spirit in which the lights were brought down. We were all, the chairs were taken out of the big room so that everybody would be, it's kind of a holy ground sort of moment. We're not going to sit in chairs tonight. You're going to sit or kneel or whatever, uh, you know, the Aggie spirit leads you to do in the room tonight. And the lights were brought down, and inspirational music was played. I remember Show Me the Way by Styx. I remember Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler, which is, I mean, we've got quite the eclectic uh, medley going. And you were supposed to meditate on what you had come to understand about the Aggie spirit and, and how you were going to live your life in light of it in the next four years. And this is true. We're in the middle of this, and there's a point where I'm just like, looking around the room like, this is a practical joke, right? I'm not putting my head down because this is not really, this is not real. Uh, but there were many solemn, <laughs> uh, dedicated Aggies in the room that night. I was apparently not one of them. Um, and that was followed up by a share time, a smaller group share time with the lights out and many tears. And I don't mean, to, I love, I'm an Aggie. I love Texas A&M. Um, part of my livelihood depends on the Aggie spirit, I guess, in some sense. Um, but I, it didn't take for me in the way that it was supposed to take. Some of it took, but most honestly, most of what, what stuck had already been in me. I was, as my, one of my cousins liked to say, I was agonized at a young age by other cousins who came to A&M. I was in a long time ago, and then when I actually got in, I was kind of weirded out by some of what I experienced. Um, and, and now, 25 years later, uh, I, I remember what I was told to believe. In fact, I remember the, all the yells that I was taught, all the things I was taught to say. I remember the specific yell for fish camp that year, which was, um, oh gosh, I remembered it earlier. Fish camp 93, Aggie lands the place to be, on new journeys we'll be heading fighting class in 97. I remember that. But the spirit of a lot of what they were trying to put in me did, didn't take because I was just told, believe this, believe this, believe that. Some of it made sense to me and some of it didn't. Some of it rang true and some of it didn't. What we want to do <laughs> as we spend months, not a weekend, but months, talking about the faith which was once and for all given to God's people 
as we spend all of these weeks talking about what, what are the beliefs at the heart of that faith, um, we want to do something very different than that. Uh, we don't want mindless indoctrination. I don't want mindless indoctrination. The goal is not to tell you, here's a list of things to believe, check the boxes and walk out of the room. The goal, though, is to, from the, from the standpoint of the scriptures and with the guidance of the spirit and with the authority of the church, to look at a reasonable scope of what is meant here when the scriptures talk about the faith which was once and for all given to God's people. And ask ourselves, are we, reading, are we rooting ourselves in those beliefs, in those practices? And the focus on this, obviously if you wanna do a series on what Christians believe, you could teach on that forever, and in some sense we do every week, some version of that. But the focus on this will be on kind of the primary heart of the gospel, heart of the truth sort of things uh, that make up this faith that has been handed down through the ages, and not to try to prescribe what everyone's supposed to believe about secondary issues, though the, the, this is the one thing I'll say about that. My, my discovery over time is a lot of the time where we get into squabbles that, that really lead to problems over our disagreement on what to believe over secondary issues. If we talk long enough, we discover we have different roots at the primary issue level. We have different beliefs about sort of the core understanding of what the faith handed down once and for all means, what it is. So uh, before I get into to, um, that too far tonight, I want to kind of assess, just in a broad sense, what uh, the situation is in terms of what people believe broadly in our, in our country, in our culture and specifically what, as we, kinda, we can kind of narrow it down, what Christians believe and don't believe. So there's a lot of research. If you go out and, and start doing research, I focused in on two of the, I think, primary studies that, that uh, are by reliable research groups and want to show you some of the results of that. The first is just this very broad study. It's actually very, a very, very detailed study, but I'm looking at the sort of the broadest question that they did, the Pew Research Group, Earlier this year, did a study. Gosh, that's going to be, I don't know how much you can see that, but basically they asked people if they believe in, in God or not. This is the simplest sort of starting point on talking about what we believe when it comes to spiritual things, right? And one third, um, the, the, the headline there is that one third of U.S. Ad adults believe in a higher power of some kind, but not in God as described in the Bible. But if you, if you come down, to the chart, the question asked, do you believe in God or not? Might surprise you to know that in the US, and this is fairly consistent across surveys in the US, that about 80% of people still say they believe in God in some, in some fashion. If you break that number down, about 56% say they believe in God as described in the Bible. And 23% say they believe in some other higher power or spiritual force, and then you can get over into the, the no's and what they believe or don't believe. Um, but this is, this is like the broadest sort of sweeping look at what people in the U.S. believe or don't believe about God. This number is continuing to change at some level, and, and for sure when you start narrowing it down to specifically Christian questions, which we're going to see in just a second, um, the, 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 the statistics changed quite a bit. In fact, uh, from 2013 to th 2015, just a two-year period, 
Americans, they, they were trying to calculate how many Americans can we identify as post-Christian. And here's how they define that, okay? They, to be post-Christian, you have to answer yes to 60% of these questions. Do not believe in God, atheist or agnostic, disagree that faith is important, have not prayed to God, you can go through those, disagree that the Bible is accurate, accurate. agree that Jesus committed sin. So there's this grid for this is what it means to be post-Christian. Anybody who uh, this 60% of these statements apply to is considered post-Christian. From, in two years, from 2013 to 2015, that number grew from 37% to 44%. That's a significant change in two years, and that has been the trend line for quite some time. Um, if we start narrowing this down a little bit to, let's talk about people who identify as Christians. What do they believe? So the first category I'm going to show you is called um, notional Christianity. So these are people that in some way say that I'm a Christian. They identify in, in some way as a Christian. But then if you ask them more specific questions, have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? Do you believe your sins need to be forgiven by Jesus? The answer to that question is sort of indifference or no. So for notional Christians, which is 42% of the U.S. population would, would be notional Christians, 51% of them believe in an absolute moral truth. 57% have an, ab, have an orthodox view of God. And then you can look through the different categories. Only 22% feel a responsibility to share their faith. Only 24% believe the Bible is accurate. And this is not even into the kind of nuance of, does the Bible have errors? Does the Bible have irrelevant errors? This is just, is the Bible accurate in all the principles it teaches? Only 24% of this group would say yes to that. 68% would say Jesus sinned. They don't believe that Jesus lived a sin, sinful life. Um, and only 14% would say that Satan is an actual living being rather than a symbol, okay? So we're going to continue to focus this down. The next group uh, is non-evangelical born-again Christians. So these are people who would say, uh, yes, I've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. It felt important to me. My sins were forgiven. That felt necessary to me somehow, but didn't, uh, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, because we're going to get to the next slide, which is evangelicals. In fact, let me show you, because I think it makes this, this second one make more sense. Evangelicals essentially are people that say yes to all of these things. So if it looks like, wow, that's a real monolithic group, because they all say 100%, that's how this group eventually defines evangelical. They have seven categories that they say, people who say yes to all of these things are evangelical. So the numbers are really high here even though only 86% uh, would say they believe in absolute moral truth, which is a really interesting little quirk in this. Um, among evangelicals, who are only 6% of the adult population by that definition that they apply to it, this is kind of what we would expect. This is kind of what we'd say, yeah, that's more or less the faith handed down, right? You get into this middle category, though, which I think applies to a lot of people in our churches. These are people who wouldn't say yes to their, all seven of their categories, but would adamantly say, I'm a Christian. I've had an experience with Jesus. It affected my life. It changed my life. 
70% believe in moral truth. You've got 11% of those people who have some sort of unorthodox view of God. Um, 76% say their faith is personally important to them today. So you've got a group that would say, this was an experience in my past, which probably makes up a lot of that. 24%. Only 31% feel a responsibility to share their beliefs with others. Only 55%. This is really fascinating to me. believe that the Bible is accurate in all of the principles that it teaches. Only a full 46% believe Jesus sinned. So only 54% of those people would say that Jesus lived a sin, sinful life, and only 35% see Satan as a real force, a real being. Um, so I'm not trying to draw a bunch of conclusions from these graphics. I just want you to have a sense of, of what's out there. And I had some research uh, on young people, but I didn't want to put that up and make it feel like I was beating up on the younger generation because I think what's reflected there has more to do with the generation of their parents and grandparents than it does with their generation. But just know the statistics for this kind of stuff with our, our youth nationwide in the church are not great. These numbers change even more, and then the statistics of them leaving the faith, leaving the church, are alarming. It's a real thing. You can Google it. You can do the research yourself. So let me tell you what I see in all of this and what, what I hope we can do from this passage in Jude and, and then moving forward. Um, we're, we're living in a shifting landscape. This is not a great uh, insight on my part. This is a known thing. The religious landscape of our country is shifting, and that shift is happening outside the church, and that shift is happening inside the church. And it's important, I think, for us to understand that, that this is not just, well, all of us here who still call ourselves Christians and who go to church, we can assume that we mean the same things when we identify as Christians. We can assume that when we talk about the faith handed down, we're talking about the same set of beliefs. It's, it's less true than it's ever been. There's always been diversity in the church, but it is increasingly untrue that we can assume that we mean the same things and we believe the same things just because we identify, even in very sort of intentional and specific ways of having a personal experience, of, of having our, lives, our life changed by Jesus in some way. So that landscape is shifting. Within the church, uh, one thing that's happening, I mean, we've looked at this non-evangelical, born again, and evangelical, but one thing, and, and understand uh, I struggle deeply with this word evangelical right now after the last three years um, and how the way it's been uh, handled publicly. And that's part of the shifting landscape, right? Some of us don't, aren't that interested in that label anymore <laughs> because there's a whole pile of assumptions, some of them true and some of them untrue, that are associated with that. And then you look at a study like this and it has an even narrower, it has a very, very specific so when you see them say only 6% of the adult population is evangelical, they're talking about a much smaller group than the group when you hear 82% of evangelicals voted for Trump in the last election. That's a much wider metric that's being used. That's probably something closer to the born-again metric uh, that we saw. It's essentially anyone who claims you need to have some kind of faith in Jesus to be saved. It's kind of the broad, common usage of that word. But many are grappling with that. Many no longer want to be known as evangelical. Many are questioning how much politics and spiritual faith have become intertwined. 
over the years. And many of us are just wrestling with, have been, and continue to wrestle with difficult things that we face in our life that bump up against the things that we've always said we believe and make us go, wait a second, is that true? Is this thing that I've always believed or always professed to believe about God true? Because the thing happening in my life makes it hard for me to hang on to that. Or the thing happening in the life of this person close to me or the lives of so many people around me make me question whether this thing that I've always believed is actually true. And I would be surprised if there is anyone in the room who hasn't recently or isn't now in some way grappling with some version of that. It's part of the human experience to constantly be bumping up against things that make us question what we believe. And so those are some of the shifts that are happening. Some of it has to do with what's going on around us. Some of it has to do with really personal experience. And some of it has to do, I think, with what we talked about this summer and what Jesus described in Luke 8 when he told the parable of the sower and said, a third group hears the message, but as time passes, the daily anxieties, the pursuit of wealth, and life's addicting delights outpace the growth of the message in their heart. Even if the message blossoms and fruit begins to form, the fruit never fully matures because the thorns choke out the plant's vitality. I promise I'm not gonna hit you with this every single week that I preach, but it just continues to haunt me. because I think it describes a lot of the shift that we're seeing within the church, which is we have, in theory, believed the right things, but the course of our life has nullified the growth of those things. And before we know it, some of those beliefs have become uprooted. And Jesus says, if you, if you let life take over, that's what happens. So some are drifting Um, and some are bolting out of the church. This is just a thing that's happening. We're not. We're here, right? But this is a thing that's happening in the church. Roots are coming up, and people are moving on in one way or another. And, And some of us, though we haven't moved on, are struggling with what we believe and making sense of all of it. So here are a few things that I see happening. I want to tell you three things that I see happening in the church. They're not going on the screen because I don't want to get saddled with them on the internet um, because it's just my observation in the moment. <laughs> this is not uh, scripture, um, but, but I think it's true, and I've spent a good bit of time talking with, with people um, who I think are wise and, and who see something similar. So within the church, as the landscape shifts... Um, and as I think this, this admonition that Jude gives us to struggle for the faith that was given to God's people once and for all becomes harder, and as um, th- there are more things competing with that, I-, I see three things happening in the church. Uh, and... Um, Enough disclaimers. One of them is I see uh, two versions of a secular church happening. People who still identify as Christians, people who still go to church, um, but the first thing I see happening is a sort of secular progressive church being born. And what I mean by that is not that anybody that has more liberal theology than me falls in this category. What I mean by that is I see people who have been uprooted by sort of more secular notions of progressive thought 
and that what they believe is changing. And that belief is not, that, that changing belief is not primarily rooted in Scripture and a changing understanding of Scripture. It's primarily rooted in, it's gotten hard to believe what I believe. And what's happening around me in this progressive school of thought makes some sense. And so, but I'm not ready to leave my faith. I'm not ready to leave Jesus behind. And so what I see forming is a sort of secular progressive version of Christianity. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is uh, what I see as a secular conservative version of Christianity. And these, th- this is a, a way of thinking that says, yeah, I'm still a Christian. Yes, you, you have to be saved. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that gets attached to it. There's almost a pride um, that, that comes with, uh, there, there is a power play that comes with it that um, I, I believe uh, Christians are supposed to take over and sort of dictate how things go. And there's a conservative sort of social bent to it. There's a rejection of the progressive secular stuff. But there's an, listen, uh, not all secularism is liberal. <laughs> um, there is a, a very, very vibrant secular conservative way of thinking. And so there, what is happening in the faith, in the church, is there is forming a secular progressive version of Christianity and a secular conservative version of Christianity. Now some of you may be going, I don't care about it. What are you talking about? I don't care about any of this. Most of us don't fit in those categories. That's why we're here. <laughs> Just honest. Um, but here's the third category, and this is what I want us, I, I want us to be aware of those two other two categories because there is a pull, there is a gravity to both of them that pulls at us. And it's real. But I want us, I, I want us to understand that I think for most of us, the real danger is in this third category. And this third category is people who don't fit in either one of those camps but who in one way or another end up unsure and unrooted about the faith which was once and for all given to God's people. And if I, if I look at us, I see more of that than the other two. Here's the problem. It's great that you're not moving on to one of those, what I consider more secularly formed ways of, of sort of seeing Christianity. If you want to argue with me about those things, call me up, we'll argue about them. It's great that we're not moving into those camps at this point. But, but our identity can't be in not being those two things. Our identity has to continue, and, and all the more because of the gravity of those things and other competing things, our identity has to con- be continuing to root ourselves in what is true, in the faith handed down once and for all. Because if we don't, we start drifting without roots, and eventually we lose touch with why the roots matter, and that, in my opinion, is what has happened in both of those other iterations. We've lost touch with why the full roots of the truth matter, and have taken hold of the parts that we prefer, and we've made our camps. And if we resist that, but we don't stay rooted, it's just a matter of time. And we're drifting away from the faith handed down once and for all. This is not a new problem. Jude, after he says this sort of 
Beautiful thing about Jesus, beautiful thing about God's people, and this challenge to contend for the faith handed down in the first three verses of this book book he wrote. He writes this, some people have sneaked in among you, it seems, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly people who are transforming God's grace into licentiousness and denying the one and only master, our Lord Jesus the Messiah. He then spends, if you want to read this, Jude is one chapter. There actually are no chapters because it's one uh, group of verses, but he spends the middle part of his letter giving specific examples of the utterly catastrophic impact of people wandering from that faith handed down once and for all. And listen, he's not just talking about people who didn't believe in God. He's not even just talking about people who didn't profess Jesus. He's talking about people who have fragments of the truth, but have it distorted by other things and have wandered from the true faith handed down once and for all. And he lists people who wander off from belief to devastating outcomes. And this, um, what he's doing, though it's a rough, it's a rough read. <laughs> it's, a tough, it's a tough book to read if you want to just uh, believe God that is God and a God who is tiptoeing around patting everybody on the head. That God disappears in this letter. But what he's not doing, as you'll see, because we're going to read the last part of the letter here in just a minute, and as you'll see in that, in that part of the letter where he is tender toward those who are struggling with their faith, He's not offering this hellfire condemnation of any who wrestle with what they believe and who struggle with what they believe. What he is doing is recognizing that what we believe matters and what we believe has consequences. What we believe shapes who we are and how we live. And that's why God cares about what we believe and how we live. We... we, heard, I think it was Aaron that read it in the middle of that song earlier, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God cares about what we believe. He cares that we stay in the light. We often think, not that big a deal to sort of walk one foot in, one foot out. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He knows what roads lead to life and what roads don't for us. And he is deeply invested in us staying on the paths that lead to light. This is not a scare sermon. I'm not trying to warn you against the evil progressives or the evil conservatives. This is not a culture war sermon. I don't want you digging in to fight against people. This is not about me. It's one of the reasons I, I offer those disclaimers about I'm just telling you what I see but I'm not interested in creating camps and groups of people that we oppose. I'm not encouraging you to fight against anyone. In fact, I think if, if, if you're being asked to fight, this is one way to know whether uh, what you're getting is the faith handed down once and for all, because if you're being asked to fight against other groups, um, you're in a secular space. You're not in a biblically rooted spiritual space because Paul writes really clearly in Ephesians 6 in telling us to be rooted and telling us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. He says, put on God's complete armor 
then you'll be able to stand firm against the devil's trickery. The warfare we're engaged in, you see, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule the world in this dark age, against the wicked spiritual elements in the heavenly places. It's important to remember both parts of this, that we're not fighting battles against other people, but there is a battle between the kingdom and the worldly powers. And much of that battle battleground is on what we believe. And that's why it's important for us to talk about this. That's why it's important for us to hear this urging from Jude to contend, to struggle for the faith once and for all. And, and Jude's admonition in us moving forward in that being rooted in that struggle, the first place he points us to is truth. Paul, sorry, start with Paul. He says, for this reason, you must take up God's complete armor. Then when wickedness grabs its moment, you'll be able to withstand, to do what needs to be done, and to still be on your feet when it's all over. So stand firm. Here's the first place he points us. Put the belt of truth round your waist. Put on justice as your breastplate for shoes on your feet ready for battle. Take the good news of peace. With it all, take the shield of faith. If you've got that, you'll be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. Pray on every occasion in the spirit with every type of prayer and intercession. You'll need to keep awake and alert for this, he says. And Jude, in the end of his letter, takes a similar tack. He says, you, my beloved ones, remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, In the last time, here's the caution again, they said to you, there will be scornful people who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who cause divisions. They are living on the merely human level. They do not have the spirit. These are not our enemies to fight. This is Jude's caution that not everyone who appears smart or kind or religious is operating in the spirit or is rooted in the truth. And then he says this, but you, beloved ones, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Same language we got from Paul. Keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, to show you the mercy which leads to the life of the age to come. Same kind of counsel that Paul gave. Root yourselves because there will be opportunities and you will drift if you aren't rooted. And then Jude, as he closes things up, reminds us of this. He says, with some people who are wavering, you must show mercy. Some you must rescue, snatching them from the fire. To others you must show mercy, but with fear, hating even the clothes that have been defiled by the, faith, by the flesh. This is Jude's reminder that people are going to struggle. You might struggle, but people around you are going to struggle with their faith. And the gospel is not condemnation to those who struggle with what they believe. The gospel is mercy, inviting us back in to the faith handed down once and for all. I wanna challenge you with uh, three questions as we finish. First question is this, where are you unrooted? And I I encourage you to think about two parts of this question. One part of this question, one meaning of this question is where are you a little lost and unsteady in what you believe? 
Are there areas that have been shaken or areas you haven't tended to or things that just don't make sense to you anymore or things that maybe you never bought? I have some of that. But you just kind of take the package deal, right? Where are you unrooted? Where are there parts of your faith that, that you're a little lost and unsteady? There's also a second way of thinking about this, and that is where are you loaded up with conviction, but your conviction may or may not be rooted in the faith handed down once and for all? What parts of your life and conviction and belief need to be held up to the scriptures, need to be held up to the truth to find out if, if those convictions, if those beliefs are rooted? So that's the first question. Second question, I want you to think about um, this part of Ephesians 6 where Paul says, you must take up God's complete armor, then when wickedness grabs its moment, you'll be able to withstand to do what needs to be done and still be on your feet when it's all over. My second question is, are you confident you'll still be on your feet when it's all over? Now, this is not a way, for, this is not intended to make you worry or be full of anxiety or wonder, am I good enough? Am I strong enough? This is a question about whether you are living your life on purpose, rooted in the truth. Whether you are in the kingdom now so that when the kingdom comes in its fullness, you're already there. Are you confident you'll still be on your feet in the way Paul describes here? And then the last question is this. How are you equipping yourself for that? And this is where there's good news. Because the confidence that you'll still be on your feet is not about how good you are at Christianity. It's about how willing you are to receive the gifts of the faith handed down once and for all. I encourage you to reread that section from Ephesians 6 where Paul tells you how to equip yourself. He tells you what good things have been given to you. And to ask for the faith to believe. We're gonna spend these weeks talking about that we'll start with some, some sort of fundamental questions that I think point us toward answers that have to do with the faith handed down once and for all. And then we'll go through some very specific um, and core essential to the faith things. So I encourage you to ask yourself these questions, pray through these questions, and then ask for faith. Because belief is not about how much I can know. It's not about how much I can talk myself into. Belief is ultimately about having the faith to receive what has been given to God's people through the ages. Let's pray.